tonight's talk is called Everyday Fanaticism, and it is a uh, commentary on the first and second of the 14 mindfulness trainings. The first mindfulness training, openness, aware of the suffering created by fanaticism and intolerance we are determined not to be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. We are committed to seeing the Buddhist teachings as a guiding means that help us learn to look deeply and develop understanding and compassion. They are not doctrines to fight, kill, or die for. We understand that fanaticism in its many forms is, is the result of perceiving things in a dualistic or discriminative manner. We will train ourselves to look at everything with openness and the insight of interbeing in order to transform dogmatism and violence in ourselves and in the world. The second mindfulness training, non-attachment to views. Aware of the suffering created by attachment to views and wrong perceptions, we are determined to avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. We are committed to learning and practicing non-attachment from views and being open to others' insights and experiences in order to benefit from the collective wisdom. Insight is revealed through the practice of compassionate listening, deep looking, and letting go of notions rather than through the accumulation of intellectual knowledge. We are aware that the knowledge we presently possess is not changeless absolute truth. Truth is found in life, and we will observe life within and around us in every moment, ready to learn throughout our lives. So these two trainings, um, continue to anchor and inspire me as I uh, move forward in my study and practice on the history and the present shape of racial and economic injustice in our society. And that's not actually the topic of my talk tonight, because as usual, I find myself contemplating particular words in order to examine my own notions and thought habits as well as trying to see and understand others more clearly. The word I want to shine light on now is fanaticism. It's one of those words we can easily gloss over, thinking with a little smugness, well, that doesn't apply to me, but such and such a politician or so-and-so a religious leader, they surely are a fanatic. How is it so easy to fall into that trap? Well, here in the United States, of course, ever since the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and on through the most recent atrocities committed by the Islamic State, the word fanatic has come to be used almost exclusively in the media to refer to Islamic fundamentalists who are perceived to pose an existential threat to our nation and our society and our civilization. That label is singularly othering. No reasonable person, not me, no one I know, no American, can possibly be as extreme or dogmatic in their views as they are. 
So there is a vast distance of geography and culture inserted between us and those fanatics. Now, the dictionary defines fanaticism as fundamentalism, dogmatism, extremism, and sectarianism. So it is not technically incorrect to call Muslim fundamentalists fanatics. But it is a mistake to apply that term only to them. These days, politicians and pundits like to call anyone with opposing views an extremist as a way to dismiss those views as unreasonable and without merit. The tales of the bell curve of common sense are by nature marginal and negligible. So since these words have been so thoroughly weaponized in our political discourse, how can they still be useful guides to us in the mindfulness trainings? I want to offer that it is precisely this othering and creation of distance that in fact marks fanaticism itself. It is noticing and transforming the othering that can become our practice to renounce our own fanaticism. In less loaded terms, fundamentalism is the strict adherence to rules and principles of any subject. To be dogmatic is to similarly apply any principle in a fixed and narrow fashion above all else. With those definitions in mind, once we take away the particular political and religious baggage currently evoked by the term fanaticism, it's possible to examine our own much more everyday fanaticism. And here's the take home that I want to offer before we get into the weeds. Principles do not define real people and rules do not create relationships. I'll say that again. Principles do not define real people and rules do not create real relationships. Well, how do I know this? Because I've been there. For most of my life, you could say that instead of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, I took comfort in the rational, the dogma, and the symbol. That is to say that I was often more reliant on my own story than looking outward. I was often more concerned with the ought than the is and I frequently mistook the idea of community for the work of cultivating actual relationships. Here's an example. For four years during uh, the time I was at graduate school at Cornell, I lived in a 14-member co-op, and we shared food and cooking and cleaning chores, and I was overall very happy there. I was deep deeply in love with the ideal of living in a cooperative and sharing aspects of life. And I relied almost completely on the household for my social life. But as time went on, I struggled to build deep and lasting friendships with my housemates. I often experienced a tension between members following the house rules and agreements and putting personal ties first. At one point, other members insisted on letting one of their friends move in even though he had a dog and animals were not allowed in the house. 
and he had to move out again because the landlord fell, found out. And then later, the house secretary, the house treasurer secretly let a housemate with money problems not pay his bills for so long that our house savings were threatened. Now, these situations upset me far beyond the genuine consequences that they created, which were real. But I suffered a lot because it seemed like nobody cared about the rules, which I equated with creating harmony and fairness in the community. And because I defined myself as a member of the group, but not in relation to the individuals, I then felt personally wronged when these actions seemed to disrespect the community as a whole. Now fast forward 30 years. Our family is now here in Bozeman and we have joined the Bozeman co-housing community, which is a group that explicitly aims to create a built environment designed to nurture and foster relationships. And we are so excited by this opportunity to focus on connection with other people who are similarly interested in creating connection. Yet, as this group has started imagining how to shape our shared life together, I've been able to notice that there's a strong collective temptation to make more rules. So it's not just me. For example, should cats be allowed outside where they will kill birds? Should dogs be allowed off leash if they might bite somebody? But instead of diving into crafting perfectly worded policies that account for all the possibilities, Jody and I have heard these concerns and instead been among the voices inviting our group to re nurture relationships before we make rules. Now, what has changed for me? That's a big turnabout in thinking, after all. Well, this practice and my delightful, beloved, insightful partner have slowly over probably the last decade helped me to see, feel, and act on a new understanding that a group is always made up of individuals. And if we value abstract rules more than actual people, we will not be in relationship. One thing I've done is to consciously practice asking more questions of other people, often as simple as a social uh, opener of what do you like to read? rather than making assumptions about the other person that turn into judgments or just talking endlessly about myself. Listening to their answers, I found it both more comfortable and far more joyful to see these new friends as they are, more than members of an idealized group. And so rules in and of themselves have become less appealing as glue to hold us together, even though they may ultimately provide some important structure in times of challenge. But, of course, in spite of my success in shifting some of my approach to nurturing relationships, I still have a lot of attachment to abstract principles and ideas. I've spent much of my 
adult life thinking about those things in the world in that way. And of course, I had a lot of academic training to reinforce that. So if you are like me and you instinctively seek out intellectual and abstract ways of thinking, it's easy to consider that that intellectual meaning-making and pattern-seeking is, in fact, the true practice of deep-looking. And I have certainly spent a lot of time and mental effort looking for and connecting causes and conditions, as we like to say. But of course, the mindfulness trainings and the bodhisattva ideals have time and again come back to remind me that without connection, and thus without compassion, what I think I see may still be incomplete or downright incorrect. So imagine knowing someone for a long time and having a kind and generous relationship with them. You learn their stories and see their actions and you develop admiration, respect, and love for them. You enjoy their company and you are confident that they like you too. That sounds like a pretty good relationship, huh? Then imagine having increasingly less contact with them until most of what you see of them are their reposts on social media of views constructed by others from fear and anger. This person seems to have stopped being curious or concerned. And you continue your own project of looking outward at the world. Your study connects you to so many profoundly painful causes and conditions that you can't see the world as you did before. Your compassion for the stream of your oppressed brothers and sisters grows. But your loved one, stuck in place, becomes an unflattering cartoon of the person you cared for. You fixate on their posts as manifesting all of the suffering and yes, fanaticism, which you believe is perpetuating hate and injustice. You can see that your loved one suffers, but you're angry that they blame others for their discomfort instead of looking at their own suffering. The respect and connection you had with this person erodes and slips away. What has happened? In the greatest of ironies, and I, because yes, this happened to me, I stopped seeing clearly and, in fact, descended into fanaticism myself. I put the principles of trying to connect the causes and conditions of injustice above this person, and I disconnected from them as my focus on those principles intensified. I brought others, whom I didn't know personally, into my circle of interbeing, but I removed or excluded this person from it. I am being dogmatic and not relational. I have become an everyday fanatic. Now, I could tell that I was struggling with this sense of othering, and in keeping with the fifth training about mindful consumption, I was trying to avoid consuming the negative social media posts that fed it. But it was clear that wasn't enough 
to maintain compassion for that person when Jody told me candidly that I sounded like I was unfairly judging those who weren't doing the work to see the just injustice that I did. And so right there in my face, my own personal fanaticism stared at me, limiting my ability to make the three jewels real, to experience the capacity for compassion in myself and others, to see things as they are, and to connect with each person uniquely and authentically. So I have to be reminded again that true deep looking into the origins of this loved one's views means not just understanding, but having compassion for their suffering, especially, especially when their suffering leads them to lack compassion for others. So it is my aspiration to transform my own relationship to this loved one's views, even if they have no pro project to do so, and even if my own change is unlikely to influence them. As the second training says, I intend to let go of notions rather than accumulate intellectual knowledge. So to regain that lost relationship, my practice has been old-fashioned loving-kindness meditation. I've tried to concentrate my contemplation on my memories of how I was genuinely connected with this person once, and water the respect and enjoyment of them that was previously so real, and letting go of my need to make for them to change their present views as much as I might disagree with them. Now, it's also been helpful to me to make that contemplation as concrete as possible, even if that person isn't present, to close the distance that arose. What did they actually do or say that I can remember? Where were we when we were together? How did I feel at the time being with them? These questions about the relation are about the relationship rather than principles. And in addition, looking at family photos has been a reminder of the reality of those moments and brought them back into focus for me. Now, as I've said, with almost every other talk I've given, there is nothing magic, miraculous, or sudden about this work. It is ordinary, subtle, and frustratingly slow at times, but it is there, and I do take refuge in its possibility. <laughs>